Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the second overall episode of Twin Peaks, Episode 1, often known, depending where you look, as Season 1, Episode 2, Episode 2, or what the German regionalization team named Traces to Nowhere. I'm your host, John. First up, some bureau business. L will not be appearing with us today. Thanks to some in-real-life events, L will not be able to appear as often as originally intended on this podcast. Now she will be showing up about as often as a Gordon Cole or an Albert Rosenfield. While these circumstances, for the show anyway, are not exactly the most ideal, rather this than be in Philadelphia, as the saying goes. Also last episode, I missed referencing Andreas Holskoff's article, My Dog Barks Some, Animalistic Sounds and Motifs in the Works of David Lynch. This would have worked out really nicely to add an extra layer or seven to the conversation where we're discussing Bobby and Mike barking at James in the jail cell. Yet uh, I would only recommend now to go read it again. My Dog Barks Some, Animalistic Sounds and Motifs in the Works of David Lynch, Andreas Holskoff on 25yearslatersite.com and or tvobsessive.com, and my apologies in advance to Andreas. As far as the episode we're here to discuss today, it is episode one. Cooper begins episode one hanging upside down in his great northern room, recording his thoughts to Diane, then notably meets Audrey Horn. At the sheriff's station, he briefs a mid-donut Harry on the day's agenda. Doc Hayward takes them through Laura's autopsy. They question James Hurley, talk with Ed, and release Bobby and Mike with a warning. Leo throws his laundry at Shelley, who hides a bloody shirt from said laundry, and later he learns it's missing and hits her with a soap and a sock. Pete serves Cooper and Harry some fishy coffee while he questions Josie, who is in process of being double-crossed out of her mill by Ben and Catherine. And Donna visits the Palmers, where Sarah sees Laura's face over Donna's before having a vision that includes Bob's first official in-show appearance. Hawk uncharacteristically loses track of the one-armed man, Audrey gets chastised by her father, Bobby's cigarette lands in a meatloaf, and Cooper tries his first piece of Norma's cherry pie while learning Margaret's log is a witness. And while James is having dinner at the Haywards, Jacoby listens to a tape from Laura while holding the missing half-heart necklace. Now that we know what we saw, let's see what kind of questions we have now that we're revisiting this episode after absorbing all of the 2017 variety Twin Peaks. What's left to consider? Is Dale already tuned to the Red Room? Are there signs of other timelines or frequencies? What's going on with Sarah Palmer and the Palmer House? What kind of presence is Laura Palmer? What does the soundtrack and sound design do to the show? And how does delusion relate to the reality of Twin Peaks? So before we go into those questions in depth, let's look at what we do know about the production of Twin Peaks Episode 1. Okay, considering the production of Twin Peaks at the time, it's summer 1989. Twin Peaks has been renewed, or it has been greenlit, to become an actual miniseries at this point. Seven episodes. That was kind of the mid-range of what they were expecting if ABC decided to make this thing official. So it's summer 1989, a number of months after the pilot had already been recorded. Um, there is a warehouse in Van Nuys, California, and that is where all the sets were going to be relocated because they couldn't film up in the Washington area. Lynch, by this point, had already, you know, he, he was hedging his bets whether or not this thing would ever get picked up in the first place. So he actually started another project that would become Wild at Heart. Um, and while Lynch was working on that stuff, Frost did the day-to-day -day running of Twin Peaks. 
So the normal TV model of the day was basically crank out episodes like they were sausage, you know, make them look about as identical and as easy to get into as you could possibly do, whether you're watching this for your first episode or your last, you know, without streaming, you were kind of at the mercy of whatever was on your TV set. So it made sense that you wouldn't want to mire yourself down in a whole bunch of backstory. But with the way Frost and Lynch wanted to take care of things, they wanted to continue what they were doing, which was look a lot bigger. Frost thought of these these uh, next seven episodes as chapters of a novel that would be continuing the the story from the pilot. Um, he basically he's even on on um, he's even quoted in um, Reflections by Brad Dukes, basically saying, "Let's make a nine hour movie." So set designer Richard Hoover got hired because he had seen the pilot episode of Twin Peaks uh, being played at one of those presentations to try to get the show uh, turned into a series. And um, he all he was doing was calling up Mark Frost to congratulate him on a job well done. And, um, you know, Frost, he's like, hey, what, what are you doing? And uh, Hoover does small talk or whatever and then and then frost says no what are you doing now and he knew based on their um their connections back in minnesota that hoover was going to be the man for the job here and uh, it worked out really nicely because he was the one who basically transitioned all of the washington stuff into the the set in the warehouse in california um, he insisted on real wood being used, which helped out immensely with the, the vibe of everything. And, you know, like when when you're when you're a regular viewer in 1990, you might not even notice that some of this stuff was actually filmed in California. But Hoover was still only able to do so much because, you know, to show how much room they actually had on this set or on this lot for all the sets. Um, you got to figure there was that one really narrow hallway in the um, in the one eye Jack set where everybody was. Um, yeah, well, the that narrow hallway is basically the only amount of one eye Jacks that they were able to fit in the warehouse. So that that explains exactly how tight all this stuff is. Um, one other thing, though, that made it an interesting uh, an interesting job to work on besides having all this authentic twin peaks sets um the directors were included in the post production which did it, it didn't happen back then you know it's like you um in 1990 you'd get a whole bunch of directors you know they'd shoot their they'd shoot their episode within like six days to 10 days or something. And, um, you know, then they just walk away and go on to their next job. But in Twin Peaks, they wanted every director to kind of feel, you know, they, they wanted each director to have a whole bunch of freedom, just like David Lynch does, where you go in and you, um, you can even design, you can even design the sound design, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, yeah, like it's it's interesting. Like you know, they were allowed to move scenes around um, if it if it fit the vibe of the episode better. And um, yeah, as far as uh, the first director, Dwayne Dunham, uh, he he was the editor on Wild at Heart, and the only reason why he got that job instead of um, instead of the job that he was set to do was. Uh, so Dunham had already recorded the pilot. I mean, he he was already the editor on the pilot with Lynch, and then um, Lynch hadn't figured out Wild at Heart yet because he's you know <laughs> the the impulse hadn't happened yet. So Dunham got a different job, and then the only reason why he got called back is because Lynch dangled this thing on you. Know, it's like, well, how about how about okay, yes, you can direct an episode if this thing goes to series. So Dunham did actually get his directing gig that he gambled on when he when he said, "Okay, I'll work on Wild at Heart," and um, he actually had to leave his editing position on Wild at Heart for a little while while he directed 
and did post-production on his episode, uh, which is this one, episode one. And then um, when he finished, then he went back to Wild at Heart work while Lynch finally got done with enough Wild at Heart work that he could film episode two uh, near the end of the whole Twin Peaks production. That's a whole thing that we'll get into probably next, uh, next Blue Rose Task Force episode. As far as how how um, Dunham actually filmed this episode, he, well, I mean, he was the guy who edited the pilot. So as far as directors go, like, who else were you going to get if you couldn't get Lynch himself to direct this first episode? You had to get everybody kind of back on the program, back in the vibe. Um, and and um, Dunham did a really good job with that. Um, what he did as far as shooting goes is um, he examined the style of the pilot and decided that he was going to use the same kind of thing. And um, the pilot ended up being the template for all of the season one episode and much of the, much of the series as a whole. Um, as far as the actual style of the pilot episode and what would end up being most of the first season and second season, um, Dunham kind of figured out this about the pilot. Um, and he, he filmed like these straight shots. Um, he says they're framed pictures and stuff happens in those frames. He said that on the DVD commentary from 2001. Um, so Dunham basically shot these static frames and he'd put in like maybe a little camera push, but that's about it. And that's all Twin Peaks needed because they really are like, it's, it's really interesting how things really are kind of moving paintings in a way. Now, getting back to that directors are included in the post-production, part of what they're included in is the soundtrack itself. Like there's no set soundtrack either. That's all up to the directors. and. um Per Tim Hunter on that same Artisan DVD commentary, he says that um, Battlemente had about 200 music cues made for the shows rather than, like, tracks. And um, there was a woman named Lori Eschler who knew the library better than anybody, and she worked with every single director uh, to mix those cues together. You know, sometimes she'd, like, play them in reverse or slow them down or speed them up. And um, it was up to each director and her to like create a brand new vision and um in this case whether whether it was intended or not these cues i mean assembled as they are they basically link dale cooper and audrey horn together because the drant oh boy because of the dance of the dream man kind of cues and uh freshly squeezed are essentially the same theme in different instruments and playing that together at the very beginning of the episode when when um, Dale and Audrey meet and have all those fireworks um it's just it it's an intuitive way to kind of make the audience you know maybe accidentally maybe on purpose uh, like really believe in those two as like a one true pairing you know between that and the fact that in 1990 it was still okay to have a leading man uh, be romantically entwined with somebody like, you know, 20 years younger than them or whatever, <laughs> you know, like look at any Cary Grant movie or whatever. That was still like an, a completely accepted ethos back then. So, I mean, between that and the music, I wouldn't be surprised if that's why there's so many people uh, being okay, you know, okay with a um, FBI guy, um, trying to be involved with a, uh, a school-aged girl, which luckily later on Kyle McLaughlin basically said no to, and there's a whole bunch of controversy, but I'm just kind of putting my line in the sand where, um, you know, to, to modern or to younger viewers, like why this was kind of a thing that, you know, people were okay with. Um, yeah. So anyway, the end result, of this episode after it was created was on April 12th, 1990, the first Thursday after the series premiered as a Sunday night movie, 
the um the viewership ratings were about two thirds what they were for that pilot episode, which was you know huge numbers. Um, it's still really good though. Um, it did admirably well against even Cheers, which was the number one show of the whole of of the whole of America at that point. Um, Cheers actually was at its lowest ratings of the whole year against that Twin Peaks episode. So I would say that's a pretty good dent. Um, the only episode that was lower than that for Cheers was the one that aired on Thanksgiving, when I'm pretty sure a lot of people were uh, choosing to watch football instead. So, yeah, good on you, Twin Peaks. So now that we're done looking at the production history and what people were thinking of at the time when they were creating the episode, now it's time to look at what David Lynch had to say after after Twin Peaks was dead as a doornail um, in these 1993 Log Lady intros, um, back when it was uh, commonly understood that that would be the final word on Twin Peaks. Um, and he did these for the Bravo Network and when, uh, when Twin Peaks was airing in syndication. I carry a log, yes? Is it funny to you? It is not to me. Behind all things are reasons. Reasons can even explain the absurd. Do we have the time to learn the reasons behind human beings' varied behavior? I think not. Some take the time. Are they called detectives? Watch and see what life teaches. So, I mean, it's kind of an aphorism in a lot of ways, but um, it's basically, as far as I'm concerned, it's basically a thing where Lynch is saying, don't expect things to be rushed along or understood right away. Um, The is it funny to you, it kind of riffs on the fact that Lynch can find this humor and this darkness all at once. I mean, things can be funny like non sequiturs, but maybe not as funny if you can understand what you're seeing. So there's, there's always reasons somewhere, whether we know it or not at the time. And I think it's, it's a nice, it's a nice thing to keep in mind at the beginning of a journey. Now that, um, now that the show proper has kicked in. Um, another thing with, um, with Lynch saying, some take the time. And are they called detectives? Are the detectives the one that take the time? Watch and see what life teaches. So my take on what Lynch thinks of as a detective isn't like the, the, uh, the data crunching, you know, figure out the, the answer kind of stuff necessarily. He's more of a, you know, with time, detectives see what life teaches, uh, whether that be, you know, a standard detective thing or whether it's a little more esoteric. Um, he, I think Lynch's message here is basically settle into the show and become a detective. Take the time, learn the reasons behind things by experiencing them across time. Okay, so now we've looked at where the show was when it was created, where David Lynch was after it was created, and then now I'm going to start by interpreting what we have seen in episode one based on all the elements that we've seen since then, like from Secret History all the way through Final Dossier, which means, yeah, everything that Lynch and Frost did in season three. how to rationalize that with the original Twin Peaks. I mean, they seem absolutely alien, but there is a certain amount of commonality here. And I think most of that has to do with the fact that Lynch has established the tone for Twin Peaks. And um, therefore, like all these things that he was trying to include in season three were always kind of baked in, but left um, left a little mysterious or unconnected so that there can be connections later. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to say that I'm right. I'm not trying to say that any of this was actually intended at the time because most of it wasn't at all. Um, but it, um, it's pretty rewarding and it's, it's kind of nice for the people that are like, you know, Twin Peaks season three or the return, uh, isn't my Twin Peaks. You know, it might be kind of nice to build a bridge between them, uh, as I do this. So, um, the first thing to consider is, is Dale already in the Red Room? 
And, you know, there, there's this thing like where once you're in the red room, you've kind of always been in the red room and I'm exploring that kind of thing. So that, um, you know, it's like, can you make a case that Dale's always been connected to this weird ethereal force? So where I land on this is he's getting tuned to where he's going to be with the dream in the next episode. You know, it's like you can kind of see that he's a lot different than he was in the in the pilot. In the pilot, he was basically this noir guy. And he um you know, he he um he had these observational skills, but he was disconnected. Like he was a little bit back here compared to everybody else. Like, you know, you're not quite sure um how he really felt about, you know, even people necessarily, you know, it's like he, he got all this glee on his face when he was trying to, to get that, uh, that letter out from under Laura's nail. You know, it's like, it, he, he was kind of hard to get to in, in the pilot, but in this one right away, we get this monologue where he's hanging literally upside down and they go down um, you know, like they, they go from the room all the way over to Dale and then like, it takes a while to get to his face. And I mean, I don't know if this was intentional or not. I know that McLaughlin said that, um, he intentionally wanted to, um, take joy, like more joy, like, you know, maybe, maybe he'd be more into the people that he was talking to than the case itself. And, um, it shows here. So, I mean, that was partly uh, McLaughlin's acting choices, but also, I mean, he's literally being turned upside down, um, in, in order to kind of get to this approach that Dale is now, uh, being with everybody. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and, uh, <laughs> you know, he notices things, uh, where he goes into the sheriff's department and, you know, he sees, you know, three people eating donuts, including Harry. And he's like three for three, uh, you know, just like, just having fun talking with everybody and experiencing everybody. And he goes through this entire day and he, he takes little breaths and, uh, you know, here he's eating this donut this whole time while he's getting this massive info dump that's happily delivered by Cooper. And then he says, and I really have to urinate at the very end of it. Like Cooper is literally an entire human experience all in like the first two minutes of this episode. As far as how that figures into like Cooper being tuned to different frequencies or whatever, that, um, that's a little harder to nail down. So I'm not going to try to do that. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm only going to do so much uh, fan fiction adjacency here, but um, it is also a pattern that we're going to notice, like with um, with Albert, you know, the first time he appears he's all and then like eventually he kind of warms up to everything as well. You know, like he starts making a joke in season two and, you know, it's like as as people experience Twin Peaks, they start to kind of warm to it. And um, the characters that are established at the very beginning are not necessarily the ones that we get at the end. So I really do see that outsiders do change the frequency of people. Uh, I mean, uh, outsiders, the frequency of outsiders is changed by being in Twin Peaks over time. So how does that figure into, are there signs of other timelines or frequencies? Well, um, another weird thing that ends up happening is like, you know, the, the Sarah Palmer house, there was a house in, um, in, well, the, the house interiors are from a house in Everett, Washington, but that exterior establishing shot is from Monroe, Washington. It's a completely different house that we see in the series whenever we get an establishing shot of the house. Um, so, like, there's these things that we kind of have to rationalize because the actual house's exterior, the Everett Washington house that the Reber's own now, um, that is what we get to see in Fire Walk With Me and in season three. So like there's these interesting changes that happen almost like almost like the houses get recast or like there's a a thing over it. I mean, I know I know Lynch um 
makes points of like continuity when it comes to the sets because um in this episode there's also like a, a repairman with a ladder um fixing something in the sheriff's station to kind of explain to the viewers uh that might notice the differences um that um the sheriff's station has been recast um but like the outside exterior of the of the Palmer house hadn't actually been established yet because back in um back in the pilot you actually never get to see the exterior of the Palmer house which is interesting you know was it ever shown from the outside no no the very first shot we see of the Palmer house is from the inside with Sarah in the kitchen then the next time we go in there it begins with the photo in the living room of Laura Palmer and then it pans from that and um and then after that, um, the uh, the very last scene we see with them is Sarah on the couch right before she sees the gloved hand grabbing the necklace. Um, th- we see her and Laura's photo in the same in the same proximity, and so basically, the the exterior issues with Sarah and Leland were so strong that like it almost superseded the exterior of the Palmer house and the pilot, which I think is kind of an interesting thing all by itself because Lynch did give establishing shots in the pilots, but he, he made sure not to use the one for the Palmer house. Um, so yeah, it's almost like if, if you want to say something about it, um, the exterior of the Palmer house and fire walk with me and then seeing it again in season three, it's almost like you could say there's a mask over the house um, masking the pain or what was really going on um, throughout season one and two of Twin Peaks. The only other thing with frequency that I would say is here already in, in episode one is the color blue. And I know Lynch has a huge thing about using using blue sparsely, but in this case, he totally approved it. And, you know, like Uli Edel, from season two, he was a director there. He got shot down for using blue. So you know this was an approved thing by Lynch um, that Dunham did here. Um, that blue hallway, first of all, Hawk sees Philip Gerard get out of an elevator uh, through one of those, um, those uh, convex mirrors that you have in hospitals to see around corners. So... Um, you know, whether you call him Mike or Philip Gerard, the one-armed man walks out of the elevator through a mirror and walks all the way to this entirely blue lit room. Or it's a hallway. And, um, you know, Hawk walks through the door, sees this bathed in blue area. And, um, you know, it's like to the morgue, the oxygen storage. And... um and that's where Gerard was walking toward. So like this this whole blue thing, it was it was a threshold and the blue kind of told me that it was it was something to do with Laura and that to step into that you probably would have to change your frequency a little bit. And at that time Hawk was not able to do that and he wasn't even thinking about doing it. So as far as what would be considered an anchor scene in in episode one, I would probably say that it's the one where Donna visits Sarah Palmer. Um, and that <laughs> that definitely leads into what is going on with Sarah Palmer and the Palmer house. Um, first thing I noticed is there are zero mirrors present, like not even at the end of like not even corners of the room, like no mirrors at all. That probably means something. Um, Leland snaps uh, Sarah out of her days to announce Donna, first of all. So, so Sarah is like definitely in her own world inside her head. And um, basically all she can say to Donna is variations of, I miss her so much. So she's looping. Um, when she touches Donna's hand, she'll then see Laura's face on on top of Donna. And then she throttle hugs Donna. And on repeat, she basically says, my baby, my baby, over and over. Um, and during this hug, she's staring straight ahead 
while, you know, Donna's like really close to her. And eventually she, uh, Sarah Palmer ends up seeing the vision of Bob by the base of the bed, that, that famous crouching image. Um, you know, obviously we don't know who Bob is yet, but that, um, that orchestra hit, you know, that, that, that kind of, that, that really in your face music cue kicks in and Sarah is screaming. And, um, the, while these explosions and screaming continue, eventually she's held by Leland. So like, it's just interesting to see how Sarah can, um, experience these sort of other frequencies in a lot of ways you know it's not it's not exactly just seeing the future it's not about um it it's more about knowing things it's like last episode you know she listens to the sounds of things and um like uh last episode she could hear um people upstairs you know who's upstairs and like she says i could tell from the sounds that it wasn't her so like she's she's intuitive beyond so many things but um i do wonder if um i mean there there's the frog bug and the psychicness and i know l was uh planning on digging into this where um you know it's like you've you've got to wonder about that frog bug being the cause of this um or being at least an antenna of it because i know i know she kind of knew things before the frog bug crawled into her mouth too with the boy um <clears throat> so sarah i think is a strong receiver and i almost wonder if something like the frog bug is making her a strong sender as well before i dig into that you almost have to also wonder if the ghost of laura is kind of haunting Sarah. Like maybe it's through the frog bug. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that there, there's so many ways that you could connect this, that it's, it's reasonable to consider this, um, that that's also happening. But, um, more than anything, I think, um, you know, the gifted and the damned are able to see things. I think Sarah is gifted and the damned all at the same time with all of this. So as far as um, Sarah, that establishes that she has uh, more than <laughs> more than reasonable reasons to be connected into this um, large spacey frequency. Um, as far as Donna being tied into this scene um, earlier in the episode with her mom, she's um, she's talking about how she's simultaneously in a dream and a nightmare. Um, they ended up. Um, well, D Donna's parents say they they were letting her sleep longer because she was crying in her sleep. Um, so you know she she has this thing that she's not dealing with in the waking world too. Um, and then she says stuff like, "Mom, it's so strange. I know I should be sad, and I am. Part of me is, but it's like it's like I'm having the most beautiful dream and the most terrible nightmare all at once." So in a way, she's kind of divided too. I mean, she confesses to her mom that Laura had a secret boyfriend and it was James and that James was great for Laura. But then um, she admits this truth to her mom that they realized all this time they, uh, they were the ones falling in love. So I feel... So I feel I've betrayed my best friend. And if that's true, then why am I so happy? So she gives this vulnerability to her mom, and she's open to this truth. It's interesting how that turned out to be a fine experience, but then when she doesn't understand what's going on, and, like, she's not able to witness the truth, like, it's almost like, is Sarah a strong sender and able to imprint on Donna because of how she's connected to all this? Or, yeah, I mean, it's... There there are a lot of things that we'll be looking at over the course of this podcast, and this is definitely one of those things that I like to keep an eye on. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, it's any scene where the three main people who knew that Laura was dead before anybody told them they were dead, uh, Laura, I mean, uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, Donna, Sarah, and Leland all in a room together. And all kind of on that frequency. I mean, these scenes are worth paying attention to big time. Um, 
And then, of course, like the the super creepy part that we didn't know was creepy at the time was how Leland is the one comforting Sarah at the end, almost like she's allowed to look away. So we already looked at certain parts of Laura, like, you know, like, is she haunting Sarah? That kind of thing. But what kind of presence is Laura Palmer is definitely worth asking for a long time in this show. Um, in this particular episode, first of all, we get um, Doc Hayward talking about Joe Fielding's autopsy report to Harry and Cooper. Um, there was a lot of loss of blood, and that reminds me of Don't Sell Your Blood that um, that Carl Rod tells uh, Crispin, I believe his name was, one of the uh, one of the Deer Meadow radio, uh, <laughs> one of the Deer Meadow re- residents. Um, in I think it was part ten of Twin Peaks, but I, anyway, it was um, it was part of the return, and um, you know it's like all these um, in in this particular episode, uh, there's the numerous shallow wounds, no single one of them serious enough to cause death, and it's like this cumulative uh, trauma. It's a cumulative loss of blood. Like over time, the blood will. I mean, it'll it'll kill you if you give up enough of yourself. And, you know, the the cumulative trauma also, to me, implies it's not just one thing with abuse. It's like over and over. It's the repeating. It's the circling. It's the cycle. Um, <clears throat> there's also bite marks, the shoulder and the tongue. That's an internal and external wound all at the same time. Um, you know, thematically, uh, on purpose, maybe but definitely thematically relevant. Um, you know, the being tied up with twine, that's a clue for the, uh, for the, uh, you know, for the plot story that they have to tell in season one as well. And, um, you know, the, the three men, you know, there's a reference to the third man, which is one of those famous noir movies, um, you know, in, in name only, it's just, you know, for the vibe, I would imagine. Um, so yeah, we don't get much of Laura personally there, but it's like the the physical effects on Laura Palmer. That's what we see. Um the the second instance that I'm going to say is how um there's there's the Jacoby tape at the end, the recording of the voice. And um I kind of think um Joel Bacco, he has Lost in Twin Peaks. It's uh it's a podcast that like really deep dives into the production history and everything. If you if you're at all interested in that stuff, I definitely recommend his podcast. I, I use it I use it for every single episode of this to check my work to make sure that I'm not like saying anything too wacky um about, you know, history of the show. And um yeah, he 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 implied that the um the flashback with James where um, where uh, Laura actually speaks to him is probably a production thing so that we will know that it's Laura's voice at the end that we're hearing when Jacoby's listening to the tape. Um, now, as far as the tape itself, um, what will end up happening is in episode seven, the season one finale, it's going to be re-recorded and listened to in a completely different location by James, Donna, and Maddie. And it's going to have a completely different tone to it, which is interesting to me that um, they would do that. I mean, from a production side, it's probably because Laura, uh, because Cheryl Lee only recorded maybe a little bit further on than we got in episode one. And they hadn't quite written out um, the full tape that we were going to get in episode seven. So she had to re-record for continuity purposes. I mean, it makes sense that way. But being Twin Peaks, being multiple frequencies, being uh, a lynch joint where, um, <laughs> you know, like one person can be a completely different name and person later on as you go. Um, Things like that are worth noting, and being from Laura, being Laura's voice, that could you you could find ways to make that mean something easily. Uh, as far as that James flashback, I mean, I in season two, one of the things that really threw me was when Andy had that vision of little Nikki, where we um, where we see um, 
in in you know Nikki in a devil costume like in the side of his head and like you know this inset window and um <laughs> you know it's like of all the things like why in the world are we getting flashback or why why are we getting images like that yet here we are in the first episode it, i guess it must be that it was more organic or less established but it's already established that we get the interior view of what actors i mean what what characters are seeing inside their own heads um i know that uh dwayne dunham in that in that dvd commentary he said that that flashback scene was james's retelling of what occurred and anybody who who uh has read secret history or um you know watched lost highway you know remembering things the way you want to remember them tends to take a visual life of its own and um yeah it's just it it's funny that um yeah <laughs> james's oversimplified look um into who laura was was there and um presented so silly i mean you know like he smells so sweet and so, yeah, it's oh poor james <laughs> he's a he's a little lamb <laughs> so um <clears throat> the only other instance we get of Laura in this episode is when we when they show that one um that one image of her close up from the video recorded on top of the mountain and um it's it's her face like paused and we hear her say help me which is really crazy like that doesn't figure into anything that we've ever seen yeah it's uh i mean was was that the only other time I can see that it might actually um, coincide with something is that one vision when Gordon Cole was free drawing that um, that antelope looking character with the arm reaching in from off screen. Um, and then he sees that desperate Laura um, at the doorway asking, you know, it's like, are you my friend, Donna, uh, from Fire Walk with me? So like that pushed through then so is the help me scene pushing through now you can make a case for it was that laura's presence pushing through lodge space into the foundation of the show and being unseen by everybody um within the show and was that just for us you know like what was it just there to add a um a vibe or could you actually say that this is actually Laura reaching through the veil? It's there to be had. Okay, so back to sound design. What does the soundtrack and sound design do to the show? So again, about listening to the sounds uh, with Sarah from the last episode, um, you know, and what I already talked about with the soundtrack cues with Audrey and Cooper. Um, there's also this interesting thing about Audrey in general um audrey's dance is a completely different uh cue than than freshly squeezed you know it doesn't have the same uh cooper motif exactly but it does have the same foundation as dance of the dream man and i know that lynch and battlemente actually did write this song as a as an actual thing for for audrey because of how they make her dance to it in the next episode. We'll get to that. But um, this was actually a designed song rather than one of those things that um, Dunham put together in post-production. So you have the, the, um, the same thing, you know, the, the love theme and Laura Palmer's theme are the same motif there. And you can hear some of Laura Palmer's theme in this. It, it kind of comes over the top of the freshly squeezed um, drum, you know, the, the, the shuffling drums and all that. The, uh, the bass line is there from freshly squeezed, but it's also Laura Palmer's theme. So it's interesting how, how Audrey has this, this um, foundational thing where she's both Laura and Cooper's worlds. And, Yet she was never actually involved in the any of the lodge space stuff until season three. So like I, I don't know. It's there there's something to that. And I will probably come up with a little stronger answer as I go, but 
I really wonder how much of it, um, how much of Twin Peaks' fascination with Audrey has to do with Cheryl and Fenn and how much of it has to do with the music and why both of those put together make her such a special character, even while Lynch and Frost tend to just kind of think of her as just one other character in their sandbox to play with. Okay, so the last question that I'm going to be considering today is how does delusion relate to the reality of Twin Peaks? So as far as delusion goes, that that could be any number of things. It could be looking away um, from, you know, the white horse is the white of the eyes, you know, um, you know, just like that. The the white of the eyes is what you show when you're looking away from the thing you should be looking at or that, you know, you need to be considering. Um, there's that. So there's ways that you could see that with um, with Sarah right now. But we've already talked about that sort of thing. This is this category is more about like how we see. Um, you know, like the, the lodge spaciness adjacency of Twin Peaks within everybody else in Twin Peaks, too. You know, like, why does the uncanny work so well in Twin Peaks? It's because it's everywhere. So we see it in head injuries. Um, you know, Lynch has the the thing with head injuries, and I'm assuming it's like, you know, you get hit, uh, your electricity gets, like, shook around inside your head, and, like, you know, um, uh, new paths form, that kind of thing. So you've got Ed. Um, Ed has a head injury um, after he was drugged, and drugs are another thing that we'll be talking about. Um, but yeah, Ed has the the head injury, by the way, of Bobby or Mike. Um, and then Johnny Horn, last episode, um, Ronette scene from the pilot. Um, so Doc Hayward talked about how Ronette has a severe head injury, psychological impact, fear, and then not to mention that she witnessed what was happening to Laura. So symbolically, you could say that the head injury came because she couldn't, um, she couldn't deal with what she witnessed uh, that happened to Laura. Um, with Audrey and Ben, there's um, I lost you years ago. You know, Laura Palmer, Laura died um, two days ago. I lost you years ago. And that losing Audrey um, gave me a um, gave me a reminder of how Norma's father was lost in secret history. And uh, Frost makes a point in Final Dossier to say that um, while while Norma's dad was lost, you know that doesn't mean he was dead. So lost you years ago, different frequency barriers between people. Um, definitely that's where we're starting with Audrey and Ben Horn. Uh, next up, we've got the Briggs, di- uh, the, <laughs> the Briggs dinner scene with that crazy opera in the background because uh, Dwayne Dunham used the opera that had nothing to do with Battle Mente because he wanted to make this uh, these crazy stakes that Bobby is living through. And you know, he doesn't say a word to his parents. You know, his parents are like, you know, his dad is going on this thing um you know talking about you know responsibility and you know like open a dialogue and <laughs> all these great things to hear except bobby is like the whole time you know it's like th- this is where the cigarette gets slapped out and into the meatloaf um and he's basically thinking you know like well, what family am i part of and like you know it's it's this interesting way of like hyper explaining or like hyper experiencing this thing that Bobby is experiencing in his own head of just like, who are these people? Um, so it's, you, you could make a case that like, he's sort of in this other frequency too. And you can see that again with, um, with drugs, you know, they're talking about drugs in that jail scene where he refers to Mike as snake and snake refers to Bobby as bopper. Um, you know, it's like the, that thing with the great wind and, uh, the zebra and like all these other nicknames, like nicknames are used by people who are typically using drugs at the time, which to me is another filter over what's really happening. It's like, you're, you're looking away into drugs, um, onto this other frequency that lodge space can kind of infiltrate. 
And the only other sense of delusion is a little bit more worldly because um, you have this set design thing with Shelly's house where her laundry is literally outside for anybody to watch. Like, so in that case, it's more about like, there's all these things that she and Leo have to experience together. You know, it's like the abuse. Um, the abuse is technically inside the house, but the house doesn't have complete walls. The house, um, you know, it's like all the dirty laundry is outside for anybody to see if you walk around to the back of the house. It's all obviously there. So I'd say that is maybe less delusion, but more of um, how metaphor surfaces within Twin Peaks. All right, well, that's about that's about where I'm going to stop for episode one. I mean, you can tie this into... Yeah, all the way up through the end of part 18, if you want to. But I think we're going to do that as we go, uh, starting next week with episode two. So you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com for additional great shows such as Retro Futurist Culture and Cinephile Hissy Fits. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and content on many other TV shows at TVObsessive.com. If you want to be part of our monthly mailbag Patreon episodes, send your burning questions and passionate feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next week as we cover episode two, the third overall episode of Twin Peaks. And until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. And it's a mystery.